All right, well, welcome to this week's episode of The Aftermath. This week we talked about Paul and his background, a little bit of his biography. Daniel, what did you think about that or anything new or insightful or yeah. what are you thinking today? No, I got the got the call from my mom this week and my mom said it was great. So just just so you know, you've moved up my mom's playlist. Yeah, whenever you got, uh, uh, <laughs> whenever you got mom on your side, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was very interesting this week. Like, I don't know, I've been to a church where someone took a whole Sunday to like explain, you know, Paul's history, where he was coming from, like his socioeconomic status, why he traveled the way he did, like why it was strategic. But like one of the themes that like I've been noticing, like a lot of stories is like you have a guy like Paul <laughs> who starts off persecuting Christians. Like he's kind of lined up on the, like he's a, he's a Pharisee and like, it's like he's in the exact wrong position. <laughs> and it's like, it's so funny how like we could be going the exact opposite way of Christ and that like leads us somehow right into Christ. <laughs> yeah. Like when you said he's in the exact wrong position, I usually think about it, like he, I've always thought kind of the more I learn about Paul and his background and who he was and what he knew and what he was doing, he's the exact perfect person, right? Like he was, right. he was the sort of elite Pharisee that had all the knowledge, like he'd been studying this story forever. He was a Roman and a Jew, right? He had Roman citizenship, which allowed him to move about the Roman empire. Uh, he had obviously certain rights within that culture that people outside Rome did not. And so he was very much like the perfect candidate for God to flip. Yeah. So like your point is, is valid. He says he's zealous for God, which means something, right? There's a whole tradition of zeal within the Old Testament history, which does actually lend itself to violence at times. And so he was completely sold out and he was a God crazy, right? He was willing to do just about anything that he thought God was telling him to do up to and including killing people, which we, we would say is definitely the wrong thing. <laughs> but it was, it was that sort of zeal and that attitude and his education, both within Judaism, but also within uh, sort of the Greco-Roman world of philosophy and ethics and rhetoric. And I mean, he was trained in all that, learned that growing up in Tarsus. And so he was very much like the perfect candidate to be flipped. We, we kind of like briefly, like we chatted about this is um, like uh, the three years that Paul spent um, after he met Jesus. I think about today and like when people, when people get saved, it's we automatically turn them well, not like we, but like I think the church in general, like kind of turns them into some kind of soldier. Like now you got to tell people, right? like now you got to, you got to go evangelize. You got to yeah. like, and like, I like that Paul's story is like, he takes three years and doesn't, we don't know what he's doing, but like, yeah. presumably he's not, you know, doing the things that we spend our first three years coming to know Jesus. Yeah. Doing, and it was, know? it was actually a lot more than that. He, so the three year period, he's, he says in, I believe it's in Galatians, he heads to Arabia and we don't know for sure, but I mean, there's reason to believe that he went to Mount Sinai because it was in Arabia and there's there are echoes and indications that Paul, as he tells his story, kind of saw himself as an Elijah figure, sort of in that prophetic history. And Elijah was one of the two sort of historical Jewish figures that were in that zealous zeal tradition. Obviously he, he had murdered some prophets of Baal. That's where that kind of like <laughs> zealous, violent kind of edge comes from. And so Paul kind of saw himself as potentially an Elijah figure, kind of waiting for God to give him uh, that status. And obviously this, this thing happens on the Damascus Road. So he goes to Arabia. I mean, one of the things that Elijah did obviously was he goes and spends time on Mount Sinai. And so there's reason to think that maybe Paul may have done that same thing, recognizing that whatever 
era of Judaism had had been was kind of coming to the close, and here was Jesus as the Messiah, kind of instituting the next one. And so it was a time of sort of rethinking and, and refiguring what the story of Israel was all about, given the fact that it, it culminated and was fulfilled in Jesus, which was not what they expected. We talked about it before. That's not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Um, but it was also kind of this place, Sinai is kind of a place where you go to get your marching orders. And so it was kind of like he was in some ways laying down this sort of zealous commission that he's been ha- been given and sort of waiting and receiving from God the new one. So there's all sorts of yeah. potential really cool stuff going on there. But of course, we're making educated guesses based on what the text kind of hints at. We don't know for sure. But yeah. after that, yeah. again, as we said on Sunday, like the history is kind of, it's kind of murky. So we don't know exactly what happened, but it it seems as though, so he has his Damascus Road experience. He heads down to Arabia for three years. And then in, in the Acts gospel, or the Acts story that Luke tells, he has his Damascus Road experience, and then he goes to he goes to Damascus, and Luke says that he he teaches the gospel there. And it seems as though Luke has compressed time in his story, because it yeah it seems as though actually that three year period happened between there. So he goes to Damascus, has his the scales fall of his eye, and then he goes to Arabia for three years. And after three years, Paul says he goes back to Damascus. So there's like a three year window that Luke just kind of like leaves out of the story. <laughs> um, and so it's, it, it looks like it's probably the case that he goes back and starts preaching in Damascus after that three-year period. Yeah. And then he heads off to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and sees James there also. Uh, Paul tells us that again in Galatians when he's talking, trying to like, Galatians is interesting because he tells us history, but he's telling it in a way as to justify himself, uh, to make clear that he got his marching orders and his gospel from Jesus uh, and he was just basically going to, as a courtesy, to talk to Peter uh, and and also James. Um, but then after it comes this period, which we know is some people call it the silent years, some people call it the tunnel years. But there's like this ten year window where we don't know what he did. It looks like he went back to Tarsus and just lived for a while and built tents and hung out. He may have been building a church there, but in all likelihood, he was just kind of going about his life trying to process what happened. So all that, a yeah, lo- like, kind of a long story to say, like not only was it just this three-year period in Arabia, but there seems to be another 10-year period, give or take, where he's just going about his life trying to understand what has happened. So there's like a, not just a three-year, but like, as much as like a 15-year window in which Paul is trying to process and understand what's going on before he really comes onto the scene and really starts planning his churches. I don't know that we're taking that kind of time to process the gospel and process what it's like living in community with people like we're shipping kids off to Bible college and, <laughs> right. you know, we're just, uh, you know, like the the wild journey that, that uh, you and I have been on, like there's a whole lot of life lived in between times of ministry. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so like, I think that's, I think it's important, like in a lot of ways to actually live, you know, like. Yeah, I uh, wholeheartedly it, agree it, with that. <laughs> and again, like you, we, we say every time, like, like three or four points to be made. And, and this is the the gospel message versus salvation history message, right? Like if if what we're about as Christians is just getting people saved, then once, you're, once you get saved and once you believe, like you just got to turn around and go get the next person. It's not a yeah. enter yeah. into community and learn and be formed and be transformed into this new person that God is calling you to be. Uh, and that the spirit it will help you become that whole part just kind of gets missed. It's so it's like they've turned the gospel into a multi-level marketing scheme, and that's not what it is. And like we've been talking about, like the more you dig into scripture, like the more clear it is that like oh, that's there's there's so much more 
but it's so much simpler. Yeah, it it does get kind of basic in ter- terms of points and the purpose of it all, but it gets really difficult <laughs> in terms of like actually living yeah. the thing out. In, in a lot of ways, it's a lot of, lot easier just to buy into that salvation culture, believe something, and then try to go convince everybody else. Uh, it's a lot more difficult to be baptized into a community and then yeah. figure out how to live life in a community with other people who believe and are trying to follow this man named Jesus and do the things that he said to do and live out justice and live out love. And like, that's, that's, that's not easy. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes, you know, deep introspection. Like it takes kind of looking at your life and the way that you live and the, like, you know, looking at the, the word of God as a mirror and saying, you know, what of this am I living out and what am I not living out? And how does this look today? And like, you know, how should I react to my neighbor or my friend or my enemy? And like, you know, it's easy to know the answer to that. And then what does it look like living it out? And like that, that, that is a process. Right. And I feel like a lot of times we're lost on the process and you know, the process like is, is the point. Like a lot of times, like, yeah, that's, we're supposed to be living in, in this, this sort of process that's changing us. So, uh, for, for those that are not, that have bought into like salvation culture where, you know, once you're in, you're in, and then you try to get other people in and that's your, that's your goal. Like you're missing out on the, the breadth of the, of the, the gospel and, and the Christian experience, I think. Yeah, I think absolutely. And before we talked about this this week, but before we did that, like what, what was your impression of like what a church looked like that Paul was creating what was my impression? Like, what like, was the, yeah, like, so he, he writes he writes to a church in Corinth or to Thessalonica or, you know, any, any one of these other locations. Like, when you imagine that church, what did that look like? Oh, yeah, like, I, I kind of, so, like, because, like, I've kind of did the, I've I've read a few books by, like, Viola and, and, and others who have talked about, like, like, how they planted churches, you know, so it was smaller groups of people and it was yeah. in houses. I kind of had that kind of thought that like, okay, well, he's going to regular people. And like, we see Paul talking in the public square. Looks like he catches a few people in there and then, you know, they invite him over and Paul just goes and stays with them and teaches them, you know, and then that's, he calls that a church. (laughs) And then like those people in turn, you know, are holding meetings and that type of thing, like, and living, you know, in community together. So like, I kind of had that kind of, that kind of thought before, we got into it, so. I just find myself continually being reminded and surprised to a certain extent at the, <laughs> at the size of the communities that he was building. I mean, even knowing all that, you know, I go and read a letter and you think of, you know, a church in one of these locations. I mean, he's addressing a church of a city. Just in my brain, like that's a, that's a big thing. That's a, that's a large body. And it's, yeah. it's, it's always sort of surprising to me that, to be hit in the face with the reality that these are, you know, like groups of like 20 and 30 people. The one church that we know was, was maybe 50 people. These are not big affairs. They're not like huge movements, at least not initially. Right. Um, they certainly obviously grow into that and they spread out from there. But I think maybe it's in Corinth where he has maybe more than one house church, but in these other places, it's literally just like group of, you know, it, it could have been like 20 or 30 people. Like it's literally just small house, house church. Yeah. Uh, I think like that that takes pressure off too. Like you look at the Apostle Paul and you're like, man, look at all this, this this great stuff that he did. And it's like, well, he he planted a bunch of churches of thirty, forty, fifty people. Like that's that's a lot more manageable. You don't have to have a mega church in fifteen cities. You know, right? He's not like a multi-site like, church. You know, broadcasting himself everywhere. <laughs> um, the other piece of me, I think, not just only the size of the church, but 
what that carries with it. When I like when I read a letter, one of these New Testament letters that he's written, like it just seems like such a monumental thing, right? Yeah. Like it was like this huge, and, and it's just probably the way that we built it up or even I built it up in my head. It's just like, I think that this is a letter written to like this powerful social movement that's sort of taken over the world. And here's the, you know, and, and it's just like this little underground, almost rinky-dink church at that time. And it clearly becomes a huge, powerful thing in the wake of what he did and the, and the work of God and other, other people, other evangelists as well. But like you said, he's just managing 15 or 20 groups of 20 to 50 people. So, How, how much do you feel like as, as like a pastor— and I guess as like a, you know, you're not to the point where you're a serial uh, church planner yet, but like, <laughs> like uh, definitely on the road to, you know, we're not in the middle of planting another church, but we're kind of, you know, planting another church. But like, you know, this is, I, I feel like it takes the pressure off to in, just in be what, able to go. In you can just like kind of like in the, in the modern context of like, if you ask the pastor, what's a successful church? Mm. And they would tell you like, oh yeah, like 2,000 people, like if that 500 people, 300 people, that's a successful church. If you look at it through, you know, what Paul did, you're like looking at 50 people, like that's a really successful, like you did a really good job. Yeah. That is uh, extremely like life-giving. It is. And and it's like, it's, there's a process here of like re-understanding not only what a church is, but what it means to be a church leader. Um, yeah, you know, like you're right. A, a successful church then and and even now is probably 50 people. I mean, because even a church of 500 people, you've got 20 or 30 people, 40 people, maybe 50, that are like sold out, active, doing the work. And a lot right. of those people are just kind of attending, watching, not really understanding what's going on yet. Uh, they may be, you know, they may move there eventually, but but they're not at the time. So you really have a f- church of like 50 people, like. If you could get a church of like actively fifty people doing something, you can you can make a huge difference in a community. If you have fifty people sold yeah, out can, working some, you know, like really pulling in the same direction, that's a that's a, yeah. a really I mean, powerful force. But I, that forces us, I think, to rethink what that leadership looks like, what the role. I mean, not just what a pastor in today's world does, but like how a pastor gets paid. Like Paul never took salary. You know, he was. Right. He got some support from the church at Philippi here and there, but I mean, he was making tents. That, you know, I actually last night was reading a little bit more and they were, their author was talking about how, you know, at that time, you know, spiritual teachers, rabbis, like they didn't get paid. Like they had jobs. It was specifically in that like 10 year period where we don't know much about Paul. He was working, making, making tents and selling things. And, and he was in, <laughs> in working in the marketplace having people in his shop or, you know, whatever setup he had, the conversations were happening. You know, he's rethinking and being challenged and talking to other people. And, uh, you know, what we know about the spread of the church outside of Paul was exactly that. It was people who were craftsmen, who were moving from area to area for work, who were talking and having conversations in workshops and and stores and with their patrons and the people they sold to. and, And that was the way the church was being built. But going back to what the church looks like, I mean, if you've got a church of 50 people, one of the things that is an immediate problem for a modern church is, well, how does 50, how do 50 people support a pastor salary and a church building and all the other things that we've put into church? <laughs> right. Um, and it, it can't, it can't. And that was like, why well, the crossing was so cool is nobody who did that took a salary. So yeah. it was easy for that to happen. We could meet anywhere. 
we had no overhead. What people did bring, we were able to put right back into, you know, service projects at that point. You know, the, the hur- hurricane had happened down in Haiti and we were building houses and doing all sorts of awesome stuff because we didn't have any overhead to cover. And I, I think like, you know, I've, I've spent like the last 10 years like thinking like, man, I, I really want to be a vocational minister. And, it, you know, now that I, I do have, you know, uh, you know, like a bivocational ministry job, like I start to think, man, maybe ministry shouldn't be vocational at all. <laughs> and like, it, it's just, it's funny how God works that way. And you're just like, oh yeah, like, I don't know if we've made it too hard. We've made it too heavy to move, you know, quickly or you know, just because of what we expect of pastors. I, I feel like we've slowed down the, the Christian movement and like made it shallow by putting all these, you know, like financial constraints on a church, you know, like you have to have all these things. You got to like, not only do you have to pay a pastor and a worship leader and a youth pastor, like you also have to maintain a building and sound equipment and like live stream stuff. And it's like, I think a far cry from, from what the early churches had. And right. And I I think there's a, there's a good question to be asked is like, uh, and I think it's the question that's underlying everything that you're saying is like, what is actually necessary? Yeah. And it's almost like the church is going through the same sort of minimalist movement that general society is, right? Like, what can we strip away? What don't we need? You know, like how, how can we make this nimbler so that we can right. re- react and respond and, and do more? You know, if, if, we can, if we can cut overhead in half, well, that's going to free up a lot, of, a lot of capital to be able to go do something and help people and make a difference in the world that right now we're not able to do because we're just so busy paying the light bill. So. Right. Like the, the other like weird thing is like we're in the middle of a pandemic now. These are brick and mortar buildings are basically useless, you know? Right. And like I, I, I'm actually friends. Like I interviewed another church in Columbus and like when the pandemic happened, they're like, yeah, let's just, we're not going to meet in a building for now. <laughs> like we're just, we're done with that. Um, they rented like a small I guess office, they all go in there and make videos. And then they do like their community outreaches where they will, you know, have a parking lot or something like that, that like is free or given to them or, you know, they have a friend who gets them a good deal. Like, you know, that's a decent like idea. <laughs> yeah. It's not, I mean, you know, the, the only downside, well, I mean, the, it's, it's maybe not the only downside, but a major problem right now is just an inability to meet and be community in the way that we need to be. As the church, right? Yeah, we're kind of yeah. we're running on fumes to a certain extent. A lot of these churches are able to keep going because, thankfully, they have they had some semblance of community built up already. Um, but right. I, I mean, let's let's talk real practical about our experience. I mean, we had just launched <laughs> a second service and had you know 30, 30 plus new people show up. I don't yep. know how many of those people are still actively participating in our online stuff, listening to this podcast. That's not to say they won't come back when we kick back up, but because there was only, you know, six or eight weeks worth of history there, like there was no there was no actual community built. So Yeah. I mean that 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 building that community is really important. Um yeah. so there's there's some like in between situation where you know, as, as we're looking at our, our space and our building, I think one of the questions we're going to have to ask coming out of this is, okay, how can we make better use of it? If we're going, if we're going to maintain this building, like we're, we're in a situation where ours is 200 years old. <laughs> like there's some maintenance issues, but yeah. it's paid for. We're not, we're not carrying a big mortgage debt or anything like that that we're trying to service. So we have right. this building, like what, what can we be doing with it? 
I mean, if it's just being used for a couple hours on Sunday morning, like what's the purpose? So what else can we be doing with this? How can we be building a community around this space? Uh, and that's a question that church has been asking for decades, but yeah. it's, well, it's, it's going to have a new new impact and, and a new way of asking it and a new, new importance, I think, coming out of all of this. Yeah, well, like we have time. Like, <laughs> like uh, from from what I understand, like we're not even looking at giving, giving children vaccines for a while, like the vaccination rate is not great right now as far as people receiving vaccines. We're looking at a little bit more time before we're even, you know, like church at large is meeting in person. We have time to assess like, hey, what really matters? What do we, do? I think a lot of churches realize, hey, we don't really have a community. We just have a group of people who they believe the same things and we all meet up on Sundays and then we go our separate ways throughout the week. I think churches have started to realize that. So, right. Like there's a lot of people that, including us, that are like, okay, we're gonna refocus. Like this is what we really need to focus on, and this is what we can do now. Looking at someone like Paul, we don't necessarily have to be in a hurry. Like I feel like my whole life I've been on this like timeline. Like I got gotta get this stuff done before I'm 30. I get this stuff done before I'm 40. Or like I want to accomplish this. If you see Paul take a you know a 15 years where he's not you know actively engaged in in church planning, like I guess it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Maybe it is, I, but like. I think, I mean, I think there's a the, sense, I, I think it's both, right? It's, it's, this is again, like a, one of those both and situations. Like there's, the there's both urgency. Both has been your favorite word lately. <laughs> I, well, I, I just, I'm just growing to learn that's the way the world is. Nothing's, yeah. like, we're, we're real good, especially in our culture of putting up black and white dichotomies, dualities and saying it's this or this. And when you step back, you're like, nah, that's nah, both, right? Like it, it kind of yeah. a lot of it's situational dependent. But I think there's there's absolutely an urgency that there hasn't been, especially in American Christianity before, because so much, I mean, one internally, because so many of our problems have been sort of laid bare, one through yeah. the pandemic, but just in society in general, like a lot of the ways that we thought about church and we're doing church and a lot of the sort of beliefs we had about society and the way we ought to be operating have just fallen apart. The other side of that is because the culture at large has become post-Christian. We, we've talked about this again before, but like there was this whole period of several hundred years where everyone was just assumed to be Christian. The idea of evangelism was just forgotten. So almost nonsense. It was, right. it was unnecessary because if everybody's Christian, who are you going to evangelize? Right. So the church's job and the Christian job just became sort of maintenance of the Christian life. And we can debate as to whether yeah. or not but it really was the Christian life, but but that was the assumption so there's, there's an urgency to recapture that, I think, because the problems with all of that are obvious now. We have a church that is completely impoverished of the gospel and of, of the true community that we've been talking about today, and it needs it desperately. We have a culture who doesn't understand the message in large part because the church doesn't understand the message. All of a sudden you look around and things, have, things are, are really falling apart quickly. Like it's all unraveled quickly. Yep. Especially when we're talking about, you know, a, a people of God that's thousands and thousands of years old, like for our modern expression of church, like in a couple decades, that's quick, but things have really just turned yeah. for the worse. You say turn for the worse, but it's like, that's good because it, it has revealed a lot of ways in which we were going wrong. But I think the, 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 the other side of that, the, here's the both, the both and part is like, you're right. Okay. So there is an urgency, but again, God's time, you know, history in terms of, the church like is, is a long period. So if you work and labor and, and kind of putt about and build a, a small community for 10 years, 15 years, and the last bit of your life, the last five years, it pops off and something big happens, like that's all necessary. Right. In some ways that's, I mean, that's just about anything. That's not just the church. 
Like look at people who are it's, successful. It's the, they labored and yeah, failed they, they for call it the ten thousand hours. Yeah, yeah, but they you know yeah, like, people how many people who are really successful have failed a bunch of times, right? right. And, and they've they've it's, labored and worked their butts off, hundred hours a week, you know, getting nothing for it forever. And then all of a sudden, you know, to everybody else, it seems like overnight. But yeah. I think that's that's just perhaps just a human principle. I mean, I, don't, I think maybe ministry in the church is kind of the same way. You just kind of put your nose to the grind and, and work and work and work and work. And maybe someday it blows up and it's a big thing or it has a big impact. And, and maybe it's just, you know, a couple people a year for 20 years. And at the end of it, yeah. you've, got, you've, you've got 40 or 50 people that have really been impacted that are in turn, in turn impacting their world. And that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, like the the work of Paul bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, like, and the people that he trained to go out and do it, and like the churches that he left that were that were missional and started other churches, like that impact is is you know like I guess for at the time global, you know, for the for the world that they knew, like they have reached they had reached like the ends of the earth, so to speak, you know, yeah. like and, and he was you know strategic about you know going to port cities right. where he could travel quickly and go to the next place, but like I don't know like what his his view on on like how he did, but like. Like, here's the question, like, was this, you know, directed, you know, by the Holy Spirit, like, to go to these places, or was this like a, well, I have a plan, or was it just like happy accident, you know, like all those kind of things? I think it's all, all of that it rolled into one, you know, because I, I, one of the things that's kind of obvious as you kind of really pick apart the story of where he went when, you know, like, I, I think it was Corinth where he spent three years, like he landed, things were going well, and he spent three years building that church. And that kind of goes yeah. back to what we were just saying. Like, it wasn't like he just dropped off, spoke, you know, just got up in the middle of the town square, gave a gospel message and, you know, like, oh, 50 people joined the church and then he got on the boat and took off, right? He stuck around, you know, and there, I'm sure there were times when he probably was thinking to himself, hey, I got to get, I got to get moving to the next town, but he didn't, he just stuck around. There are other times when he literally is there a day or two and people get real mad yeah. and they want to, they want to string him up and he's got to, <laughs> he's got to flee for his life. I think what you kind of see in and through all of that is it was whatever the situation dictates is what he did. And he says as much, right? right? I mean, when he talks about, you know, I became, you know, I was under the law for those that were under the law. I was outside of it for those who were outside of it. I, you know, became a Jew to the Jews, Gentile for the Gentiles. Like what, whatever the situation dictates is, and that's kind of go back. That really is the, the sort of zealous thing, right? Like as a, as a zealot, Paul was willing to do whatever it took <laughs> Um, to right. purify the religion, right? He was he was very law abiding, but whatever was necessary in order to bring that purpose about, he was going to do it. And if that meant picking up stones and throwing them in somebody's head, he was going to do it. And in the, the the new Paul, you know, Paul the apostle, like the role kind of flipped. <laughs> of course, he's not picking up stones, right. but whatever you know, wherever he needed to go, whatever he needed to do, whatever he needed, however he needed to present the message, he was willing to do. And I don't think he had any particular plan. We talked sort of at the macro level. He knew he was going to or he appears to have known he was going to kind of hit the port cities, the major metropolitan areas where he knew he could sort of plant the seed at the highest chance of growth and then allowing it to grow from that city out to other cities, out to the, the countryside. Looking back at it, it looks as if he was trying to plant it where he knew he would get the biggest bang for his buck. Right. Um, but as far as like what that looked like on a day-to-day -day basis and where exactly he went and which port city he hit and how long he stayed there, like it was seemed to be very much like whatever's in front of him at the moment is what he was going to do. And he was going to hang out until he met such resistance that it was no longer practical and then he'd move on. One of the things you brought up about like, you know, like the kind of, uh, I guess, proof for Paul's, you know, encounter with God 
is like a lot of this was at his expense, you know, <laughs> as far as like bodily harm yeah. and like dangerous situations. And like, I, I think that's, you know, it's something that I guess we're, we're missing is that, you know, that servant mentality, like uh, that suffering mentality. Like this is, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go ahead and do it and it's going to hurt, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I think we, we missed a lot of that in church today. Right. Um, I was going to talk about, but just didn't have time to, but they've some, I was reading just the other day, some historians have sort of pieced together what it would have taken for him to be writing these letters and having them sent. And they were calculating the actual economic cost and they had figured out between what it would have cost to actually like write the letter to get even just to get the materials to write a letter, but to, to write it or have it, have it written and then have it couriered. Like his letter to the Corinthians would have cost, if you read that today, it would have cost you $2,000 to send that letter. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, here's Paul making tents, come up with this cash, you know, and then put it on the line in order to, to facilitate his churches. So like there was actually hard economic costs associated with what he was doing. He was putting it all in. It's, you, you figure <laughs> like, we got, what's the, what's the 13 what's letters? What's the to today? It's basically 30 grand worth of letters sitting in our, in our text right there if they all cost roughly that. that that's like buying a, a, a good DSLR and, you know, taking your time to put out uh, TikTok posts. <laughs> like, right. you know, like, I wonder how many grand worth of TikTok posts or, yeah. you know, like it, it's, it's very similar. Like, I guess when you put it that way too, like the, the cost of starting these churches and, and the work that you put in, like you're given value for this degree that you're, that you're working at. Like, do you ever, <laughs> do you ever get paid enough to make sense for that degree? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I think the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> I mean, well, and this, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation to be had, but just the way that we have built, I mean, what, what was discipleship is turned into this academic education process. Uh, and, and there's a huge right gate. It's, it's, it's some literal gatekeeping. Like if you can't afford to go to college, to go to grad school and get a degree, well, then the doors are shut for you to, to lead a church. And that's, that's yeah. not good. Not good at all. I think but, that's come up in in our conversations on TikTok though, like people saying like, oh yeah, well, well, theology people are, you know, the gatekeepers to all this. And, and, you know, we don't need to go to school because all they are is, you know, just holding back stuff. And like, I, I don't know that there's a realization that like that, that needs to play out in discipleship and not just schooling. Right. I mean, it's, so, it is, I mean, it's a travesty that the things that we are educating are you know, pastors and our leaders about in seminary are not everyday conversations in the church. That, sh- that should be the case. Like we should be having, you know, whether it's intense studies or, you know, I, I try to bring as much of it as possible that's accessible to an actual sermon. I mean, like we should be teaching this stuff. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in seminary classes in the past and said, why, you know, this is what, this is what we need to be teaching to our church. Why is it that we sit around and we talk about all this stuff? We have these really interesting conversations and we pick apart and we start to understand this, the text in these really amazing ways. Then we never tell our people that stuff, right? Like that's just right. so bizarre. And you're right. Like so much of this is important. I mean, to be the- theologically educated and trained and to understand what it was that Paul was doing and, and who he was and, you know, what the context of the letters that were written. And, you know, I've been spending some time looking at, the you know seventh chapter of Romans recently, reading a bunch of commentaries. There are three or four competing ideas about what that section means. 
what so often happens is you just get a pastor that stands up and says, okay, here's what it means. And then you go on and then <laughs> that never gets questioned. But then, then what happens is you go out in the public sphere and you interact with people that come out of a tradition that have seen it one of the other ways. And now you're just button up heads and arguing with each other and, you know, question yeah, each other's salvation. And you're not a Christian because you see it differently than I see it. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like y'all, like there, two of those three or four have been debated forever. So one of them comes from Origen, the other one comes from Augustine. And ever since there've been these two debating sort of interpretations of that passage. And this is, this is the one where it's talking about like, the, is the law sin where the, the, of sin takes advantage of the law and is, it gets used and so like used by sin and Paul's trying to, you know, argue that that doesn't make the law bad, but it's certainly the purpose of the law didn't, f- wasn't fulfilled and becomes a tool of, of Satan basically. You know, if, if we don't have these conversations and, you know, we're not educating the church as, as people to, to think this way and we run, we've got so many problems because people aren't able to think critically about their faith. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a problem I think in education at large right now is we've taught people material and not taught them how to think or problem solve. That's an even bigger issue than, well, I don't know, bigger, but like it's a broader issue than the church. Even with our regular schooling, we're just kind of like, they give us the curriculum, we study the curriculum and we s- expect those things to be true. And we don't, we're not looking at other sides. We're not critically thinking about <laughs> any of that stuff. And it just kind of, I think, passes on to uh, our biblical understanding also. Or maybe it's the other way around. You know, I think we need to crack that whole thing open, uh, the, the whole education discipleship piece, and realize that, like, we, we have, we've kind of pushed real discipleship. I mean, discipleship was, I mean, go back to that first century and the rabbinical system, discipleship was this process of sitting at a rabbi's feet, becoming a student so that you can learn everything that they learn. And... At that point, in the Jewish system, that was there was a process that you went through to qualify to do that. I mean, it was a 10 or 15 year educational piece as you were growing up in terms of memorizing the entire scripture and learning how to interpret it. And if you showed promise and ability, aptitude in doing that, then you would apply to a rabbi to become a disciple. But it's that system that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, now go do that to the whole world. So yeah. Jesus opens that process and that system. I mean, he does from the very beginning by calling the 12 that he does who had washed out of that system, who were not good enough. Those are the ones that he calls to be his own disciples. And then says, go do that for the rest of the world. And, and we have turned it back into this system where if you don't you know, get a three, five in undergrad and if you can't carry a three, one and, or whatever, you know, like if you don't qualify and if you don't have the dollars or a church who's willing to pay the dollars, to go to school, well, then you don't have access to that education and that wow. insight. It's like, is that really who we want to be as a church? Who, who we're called to be? Like, that's not what Jesus said to do at all. So we've really got to rethink that, I think. That was amazing, dude. Like, that's, uh, I think, part of the reestablishment of teachers within the fivefold ministry. You know, like, I, we've we've lost, you know, we, we've talked about the fivefold ministry quite a bit, but... Uh, you know, we've lost teachers altogether. Teachers are kind of relegated to children's ministry and Sunday school now. How many like real teachers do we have out there? And then like, what is the, you know, the, the role or process or anything of, of teachers, you know, we've, we've kind of melded that role into yeah. the pastoral role. And, and now like when you see someone who's like actually a teacher, like functioning in a teacher uh, kind of form within the body, it's like, oh, this is refreshing. It's funny going back to uh, 
how you talked about like rabbis. I remember you asked us, you know, was Mary, you know, actually, this was like at the crossing, like maybe like our first sermon downstairs. And the question was like, was Jesus like immaculately conceived or was, was it, you know, like, did he become Jesus? And, and like, my answer was like, oh yeah, it was like the Holy Spirit, like impregnated Mary. And you were like, why does that matter? (laughs) And I was like, you know, I've never thought about that. Like I was a little bit offended. What do you mean? Why does it matter? This is, this is how it is. This is the, this is the way it's put. Like everyone knows this. And like that thought to go deeper and like, why does it matter? Like, (laughs) why did it happen this way? Like, did it need to happen this way? Does it change things if it didn't happen this way? Those kind of questions were not on my radar. To be clear, at the end, we said that, yes, it does matter. And yes, it did happen, but... <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, we, we, weren't, we weren't undercutting the virgin birth, but that we were asking, why, why is it important? And, and yeah, you know, yeah, does yeah. it change the story if it doesn't? And, and all those sorts of interesting questions that, that don't get asked. Um, right. Well, that, like, that stops a lot of people from, if someone comes to that conclusion on their own that it, it didn't happen and it doesn't matter, well, like if you have that conversation out in the congregation, like that person's m- much more likely to, I guess, come back into the fold or like be allowed to hold that, you know, belief in tension with the rest of the body. Like, yeah, right. They, they don't have to start their own denomination. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a big problem too, is we just have, we have this inability to think critically. We have an inability to see how other people would think the way they think because we can't think critically. Right, like I, I am, yeah. I am ardently not reformed. Right, I am. I stand <laughs> very strongly in the sort of Armenian tradition of free will, but I also understand how the reformed tradition came about and why people think that way. I just have a fundamentally different understanding of who God is and and where the priority is in Scripture. And I don't know that that's necessarily reconcilable, but I can appreciate why somebody thinks the other thing. And I think that is that ability is completely lost in most cases. Yeah. And it's because, it's because we, don't, we don't teach the other perspective, right? We're just taught, well, this is, this is the way it is. And if you believe the other, then you, you just don't know how to read the Bible or you, you know, like you don't, you've not been taught right or you, you're sinful. Your, sal- your salvation is in jeopardy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, frankly. But that's the place we're in. Go back to what we were saying earlier, like in, in so many ways, the problems and the deficiencies of our spirituality are, are understanding of the text, our ability to think critically, our ability to work into community has been really just laid bare uh, in, in a yeah. number of ways over the last you know, couple of decades. And the pandemic certainly is, is bringing the whole community issue to the forefront, but we got a lot of work to do. Like we really have to sit with it too. Cause like, this is, like I said, it's not gonna be over for a while. Like we have to sit with this <laughs> and, and really, really give it thought and really let it sink in because we can't go back to the modus operandi when this is over. We can't go back to the the American church as it was pre-pandemic. I mean, plenty of people will try, but yeah, that's, that's just holding on to a failed experiment. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be taken from Paul's example. And as we were saying earlier, just kind of put your nose to the grind, you know, be faithful, work it every day. And again, I mean, I, there's such pressure, like you were just saying, to be a successful church, to have a hundred people in six months and then 200 and 250 and 500 and, you know, to build this thing of thousands of people. But 
I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you teach and disciple a thousand people. <laughs> like yeah. how, how do you do that effectively? I don't know. Like I, I just think there's so much more wisdom in recognizing, you know, that Paul was spending his time with 20, 30, 40 people. And yeah. that's what his churches looked like. And, and there's no reason that ours need to be more than that. The other thing is I think if you get to 40 or 50 people who are really doing something, uh, a lot more people are gonna come around. Yeah, like that's that's sort of sure. infectious and people see what's going on and, and things, will, things will change. So I don't think it stays at 50, but I think some of that's recalibrating and reorienting reorienting what what we're about and what we're after what our goals are yeah that's that's the hope i think for this time that, that we're in is that like we can we can learn that like take care of the things that we can take care of and do the things that we can do now in, in preparation for what's to come because we're, we're so limited right now on what we can do like i'm one of those dudes like you know me like i want to be doing stuff <laughs> and uh, I've been forced to not just go do stuff. I've been forced to think about what I'm doing and think about what I've done and think about the ways that things are and they have to change. It's been, I think, refreshing and painful. I think that last word <laughs> is one that, that we really need to draw attention to is that the, there's the analogy that gets used or the imagery of, of being pruned is not a comfortable thing. I mean, if you want to be comfortable, you're just going to, and that's why I think a lot of people are just going to try to slide back into the way it always was because that was comfortable. Like what we're yeah. talking about is being pushed and formed and changed. And that's, change is never comfortable. You know, it is, it is going to be a little painful. It is going to be unnerving at times. Uh, I don't think, you know, Paul certainly wasn't comfortable. Not when he's getting beat. Yeah, well, like, yeah. <laughs> it, mean, it goes back to, like, they use the, uh, the vine, you know, a, a lot in the Bible. And, you know, they talk about pruning. And, like, pruning is literally your reward <laughs> for being fruitful. Like you cut a you cut a tree back that bears fruit, right. so it can bear more fruit. Right. Like pruning's not the punishment; pruning is a reward. Um, and I, we, I guess we got to learn to live that way because that's that's literally the reality. All right. Well, with that we will draw this one to a close, and we will catch up with you all next week. <laughs>